readings from Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. <coughs> the, new, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would have my head because of you. Thank you, Alan, and thank you. Good morning, everybody. Well, for people who've slept for one hour less than usual, you are looking um, sleepy, actually, but uh, pretty good. Alan mentioned the ducks. I have a group of geese from Satan camping outside my chalet, and uh, an interesting experience it is, too. It's really uh, great to see you this morning. Thank you very much for being here. And uh, before I go any further, I wonder if you would greet someone who will be preaching this morning far more uh, artistically and creatively than I ever could. Would you welcome Rachel, please? Alan mentioned that I am a teaching pastor at Timberline Church in Colorado, and I live in Colorado and commute backwards and forwards between there and here approximately every 14 days, if you can uh, believe that. All this flying is really messing me up. I'm actually only 17, but all this flying <laughs> is um, having quite an effect. But I was flying to Oregon recently, and uh, my, um, my experience was wonderfully punctuated by uh, a man who tried to board the plane and really did create quite a kerfuffle on board because he wanted to travel with his pet goldfish, and this is not usual. And the flight attendants were understandably quite nervous uh, about this. Let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, this could indeed be a specially trained attack goldfish. Sort of like Jaws, but altogether more orangey, you know. 
And so they said, sir, we're not, a, we're not sure whether you should be permitted to travel with the goldfish, so we are going to check the official regulations of the Federal Aviation Authority. And they went to the galley and they came back with this huge book which gives legislation concerning passengers travelling with domestic pets. And I am delighted to announce at Spring Harvest this morning, I'm not making this up, this is absolutely true, Next time you fly, if you do fly, if you are in need of some kind of emotional support, I quote, according to the FAA, you may travel with a cat, a dog, a fish, a monkey, a pig, and indeed a small horse. This is good. You can take Dobbin on holiday with you. And I was thinking, my mind was racing when I, I, I called the flight attendant over and said, show me that book. Would the horse have to use a seatbelt? <laughs> Would it be required to use the bathroom or could it trot up and down the aisle distributing steaming parcels through the flight? And as I looked at the book, it suddenly occurred to me that this was utterly irrelevant to everyday life. What kind of pig is going to watch the in-flight movie? <laughs> utterly irrelevant. There are some people who would like us to think that the book that we hold in our hands today, God's Word, is somehow disconnected from our modern sophisticated 21st century world, that somehow it doesn't really have anything to say about practicality, it's all engaging with piety. And they couldn't be more wrong, because this book is the most stunning, relevant, practical treasure trove of wisdom that exists on planet Earth. And certainly that is true as we turn together this week to the book of Daniel and as we study it in this Bible reading today, in the next five and a half hours together. Fear swept through the tent. You see, for us living as we do in what has been described as post-Christian Britain, this moral maze that we live in, this odd place of relativism and pluralism, where we can feel turned around and disorientated, where there seems to be a complete vacuum of values. There is help for us here in Daniel's book. The story of a man and his friends who lived 2,600 years ago, around 600 BC, facing, as we all do, a surprise in life. I wish, sometimes I wish I had a chart that would show me which bit of life I'm in. I think sometimes we think that the characters of the Bible were like that, that when David woke up that morning that he went out to fight Goliath, he said, good morning, Dad. What chapter is it today? And his dad said, oh, it's First Samuel 18. It's the bit where you give the big boy the radical haircut starting somewhere around here. Life is full of surprises. And suddenly Daniel was deported to a strange land where almost everything about the culture was disorientating. The music, the food, the customs, the religion, the philosophy, the education, the values, they were foreign to him. 
This young man, a contemporary of fiery Ezekiel, his name means God is my judge, suddenly caught up with the rest of his world in this period of exile. It was not a surprise, or rather it was a surprise, but it, it shouldn't have been a shock that this had actually happened. You see, God had warned his people that life has consequences. And that if they continued in their rebellion, their persistence in evil, that would lead to captivity. Deuteronomy 28, verses 63 and 64. You will be uprooted from the land you're entering to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to another. And the prophets had repeatedly yelled and screamed and wept. Examples in Isaiah 39 and Jeremiah 21 and 25. But now, a young and evil king... Jehoiakim was on the throne in Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 36 verse 5 gives a, a sad summary of that young man. He was 25 years old, it says, when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. And now Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's king, has besieged Jerusalem and the deportations and the plunders have begun. Have you ever had an experience, maybe with sickness, maybe with a sudden bereavement, maybe a financial crisis, that was not just a circumstance, but it seemed to shake the very foundations of who you are? I believe that 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 moment in Daniel's personal history must have been so bewildering. His faith could have been shaken. You see, verse 2 says there, Nebuchadnezzar had taken some of the articles from the temple of God and carried them off to the temple of his God. You see, the Near Eastern practice when you won a battle was to take some item associated with the foreign god, take it home, and the implication was not only have you, have you beaten the nation, you've beaten the nation's God. You see something similar to this with the Ark of the Covenant and the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5. Was Yahweh beaten? Was he against the ropes? This must have been a shaky time for Daniel's faith. Also, he'd come from a privileged background. Verse 3, they were Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. There's a rabbinic tradition that Daniel was a descendant from King Hezekiah. And now... He is placed in somebody else's service. So royalty, man of faith, and a young man too. Verse 4, young men, the Hebrew Yeladim, rendered children by some translators, is frequently used for lads or young men. Some commentators say that Daniel might have been as young as 12 years of age. Most actually pitch it somewhere between 15 to 18 Still very impressionable, certainly inexperienced, suddenly relocated into a strange land. How would he cope? How will we cope? You see, Psalm 137 verse 4 asks the poignant question that we will wrestle with this week at Spring Harvest. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? The Bible makes it very clear elsewhere that in a sense, this world will always be a strange 
foreign land for the people of God. John 17, Philippians chapter 3. God's people are strangers in the world, says Peter in 1 Peter 1 verse 17. So how can we sing? How can we sing? In Daniel, we find some profound answers to that question. So how will we approach this text this morning? Let me give you uh, some kind of map, if you will, to where we're going together. Is it warm in here or am I having a premature midlife crisis? How many of you are quite warm? How many of you are perfect and you're saying, touch the thermostat and I will kill you? Okay. How many of you are cold and for you nothing can be done? Right. How can we approach this text this morning? Let me tell you where we're going. First of all, we're going to take just a few minutes to do some foundational work. I'm going to give you a few technical details. Uh, Then we're going to look at the big picture of the book of Daniel. We're then going to look at Daniel's strange land. We're going to see what parallels there are to our situation today. And then we're going to consider Daniel's strange stand. How did he posture himself? Are there lessons for us to learn learn together. And then finally, God's mighty hand. How did God resource Daniel for his exile experience? Before we dive in here more fully, let me just pause for a moment and say exile can mean so many things. Sometimes we just feel like we're in exile because the church can face such a continuous uphill battle and we feel that the culture exiles us. Some of us find ourselves this morning, as we sit in this big top, as we sit listening in the chalets, with what Viv Thomas has so profoundly described as second choice living. You didn't choose that divorce. You didn't plan on that in those heady years when you were in the youth group together. That disease, that disability, that has caused you to sense exile. You never planned for that or asked for it. That hostile workplace in which you find yourself, that sense that your faith can be under threat. And you know, sometimes we can feel like we are in exile simply because of our humanity. The very fact that we are still humans living on planet Earth can make us feel somewhat exiled. And I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that it's okay to be human. I was uh, speaking in a church recently, and um, I, I popped off to the loo, and uh, I need to just say that Christian speakers need to do that once in a while. And I was in the loo, and this man came in, and he recognized me, and he said, Hello, Jeff. He said, I'm rather surprised to see you in here. I don't know what he thought I would do, you know, pray about it, you know. <laughs> Sometimes just being human can make you feel like you're in exile. Just recently, over the last few weeks actually, I've started talking about a one-year period of clinical depression that I went through about six or seven years ago. As a Christian leader, spring harvest speaker, writer of books about life, I went through a period of depression and needed the medication and took it gladly. I know what it is to have a panic attack. I know what it is to wake up in the middle of the night fearing that I'm going to be drowned by the dark. And I know what it is to have Christians look at me strangely when I say that. I also know what it is, as I see right now, in the eyes of some of you, a slight sense of relief to know that you are not an exile. 
because of the sadness that you battle with. Isn't it strange, people? If we broke our arm, we'd be happy to say, pray for me, I broke my arm. But if our hearts and minds hurt for a while, we feel an irrational shame. And we feel exile. And I'm going to talk about it more and more and more. Because I believe that we need Christian leaders to be real. I woke up this morning, I did not do a triple backflip out of bed. Catch my tambourine as I flew through the air. Land in my socks and cry, Hosanna. That basically happened, but I just dropped the tambourine. Exile means many different things. Let's do some foundational work together. Let's say quickly, as we come to study some of the book of Daniel, we must know that it's a contested book. These events undeniably happened 600 years before Christ. There's no question about that. Verse 1, the third year of Jehoiakim, 605 BC. The debate is over, not when the book covers in terms of the history that is dealt with, but when it was actually written. Hobart Freeman says, the book of Daniel has without question been the object of more negative criticism than any other book of the Old Testament. No other book, says Clarence Larkin, no other book in the Bible has been attacked like the book of Daniel. There are some who argue that the book was written 400 years after these events. The idea first emerging in the 6th century. Uh, alleging that it was a tract written uh, to stir uh, an Israeli uh, resistance movement at that time. Now the awkward thing about that idea is that if it's true, then the prophecies of Daniel aren't really prophecies. They're history made to look like prophecy. Which I have to say is occasionally a tactic which Jewish writers would use. Let me just make a couple of comments because... I don't think, although there is interest, I think, in this issue, I don't think you got up and you woke up and had a cup of tea this morning in your chalet and you said, today I get to find out whether Daniel was written 600 years before Jesus or 200 years. Hooray! I've looked at the various arguments. I've done the reading. I'm personally more convinced by the proposal of a 6th century dating. But it needs to be said that this is not a touchstone of orthodoxy. It's not about being liberal or fundamentalist. There are excellent scholars like Goldingay and Longman on both sides of the issue. This is not a, a touchstone of evangelical orthodoxy. The dating doesn't change the message of the book anyway. Baldwin in A Theology of Daniel says, the fact that the dating cannot be ascertained for certain does not greatly affect its interpretation. It's a contested book. It's an explosive book. Rushduni in his book, Thy Kingdom Come, says Daniel is one of the most explosive books in all human history because it assumes at every level a philosophy and a theology about God which is fundamentally controversial and confrontational to the popular ideas that humanity would like to have about God. Daniel's God is self-sufficient, omniscient, omnipotent. There's prophecy that is boldly predictive there. Daniel narrates miraculous events. He asserts the total government of God. Modern humanity prefers the anarchy of chance and a God who can be manipulated. You see, this is 
This is radical stuff. And it's quite scary for us too. I wonder how well Daniel would have done in our day. He goes to the Harry Potter school of the occult. Or something similar. He doesn't object when he's given an occult name and gets upset about the menu. He receives worship without rebuking the worshipper. He says he's not going to receive gifts from a pagan king and then goes ahead and takes them anyway. And where is he when his three friends are found in the furnace? Some commentators say it's a different generation. Now there are answers to most, actually, if not all of those problems. I'm just wanting us to see today that Daniel is not a cardboard cutout of a classic safe person. This is an explosive book. Thirdly, it's an apocalyptic book. It's loaded with uh, bizarre pictures, uh, animals and numerology, symbols. It's a biblical prototype for a number of other books, most, li- most obviously the book of Revelation, which is modelled after Daniel. And it's a miraculous book. This is a book that recounts the acts of God in a third period of miracles, that first 40 years when in the wilderness, the exodus and the wilderness wanderings, God broke in. And then uh, some 500 years later, in the time of Elijah, God broke in. And now in Daniel's time, in exile, God is breaking in. So a little technical work in terms of foundations. Let's look at the big picture, the main message of Daniel. Can I just say that this is a book about conflict, It's about warfare. It's about an invisible battle which occasionally pokes through into everyday reality and is manifestly obvious. Babylon in Daniel is not just a location. It's a system of beliefs and values. The city of this world contested against the city of our God or the city of God as Augustine would put it. A conflict which is traced in scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It's about warfare. Can I pause for a moment and say, we need to understand in a balanced way, biblically founded, that we are in a fight today. There are some Christians who go to the extreme where everything that goes wrong is is the devil's fault. You know, you dropped the milk this morning in your kitchen. Satan is there camping in your bathroom, surely responsible for this mishap. Some of you have heard me tell a little story about a worship leader who was prone to blaming everything on the devil. He was obsessed. He wasn't demon-possessed. He was demon-obsessed. And he was insisting that everyone raise their hands in worship in that kind of cheerleading style, which frankly uh, leads me towards atheism. And he said, everyone raise your hands. And as he raised his hands... His belt buckle gloriously exploded. And his trousers fell down to his ankles, revealing a voluminous pair of boxer shorts, apparently manufactured by Mr. Walt Disney. Mickey and Minnie running all over the place with their hands raised, actually, coincidentally. And as he leaned down to pull up his trousers, he breathlessly leaned towards the microphone and said... It's amazing what Satan will do to you when you're trying to worship. Gentlemen, check those belt buckles now. 
And I don't want to get into that kind of frank madness. But I do not want to be oblivious to the reality that there is an invisible realm and there is a battle raging and we can veer wildly between the two extremes. This is a book about conflict, but most of all, it's a book about God. Now you might say, well, that's pretty obvious. The trouble is, if we're not careful, we can rush to the dare to be a Daniel interpretation. You know, that means I've got to, uh, I've got to eat vegetables, I've got to pray three times a day, and I've got to open the window when I do. And if you follow that kind of simplistic logic, hermeneutically, what that means is, oh, Abraham put his son on an altar and was going to knife him. Maybe I should do the same. This is an inspirational message. There is an example from Daniel here. But really, this book is not about Daniel. It's about God. Who's the boss? The sovereignty of God. In verse 2 in this passage that we've read this morning, he is Adonai rather than Yahweh. The name that emphasizes his ownership and control. Six times the phrase God of heaven is used in Daniel. You see, just like the book of Revelation where... The seven churches were fearful of the evil king Domitian, the emperor, the Caesar of the day, who thought he was in charge. And the message of the book of Revelation is, no, there's someone else who's in charge. Jesus is Lord. Tremper Longman III, whose parents obviously had a sense of humor, in his NIV commentary on Daniel says, this book says... In spite of present appearances, God is in control. Say that with me. In spite. Not a bad practice. One more time. In spite. So we've done some foundational work. We've looked at the big picture. Let's think for a few minutes about Daniel's strange land. What is exile-like. But first of all, when you're in exile, you feel powerless. This servant, Ashpenaz, and I've got a weird mind, obviously. My research revealed that his name literally means horse's nose. That may be of profound interest to you. And the sad thing is that for one or two, that's the only thing they'll remember (laughs) about today. Ashpenaz is commissioned to get these boys to Babylon. Royalty is being herded. They feel helpless. Last week I was at a meeting in London that Steve Chalk, so grateful for Steve. He is a member of the Spring Harvest leadership team. And as a friend and as a colleague, I would like to say, I hope without it sounding remotely patronizing, how proud I am of all that God has enabled Steve to do and continue to do. And he has organized some FaithWorks lectures and last week in London, Prime Minister Tony Blair was invited to address the group there. I went along with some friends and colleagues from Spring Harvest and listened to Tony Blair speak. I then checked the press the next day, the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail, and while eating a breakfast in The Little Chef, the sun. Just wanted to give that explanation there. And I realize 
realized again that the news is not the news. I don't know what meeting they attended, but it wasn't the same one that I went to. And we realize that the media is ultimately in control and they can say whatever they like. Forget the idea that the government rules. The media are the new educators. And as I read that article and wanted to write my letter to say, no, no, he didn't say that. I felt that sense of powerlessness. Excessive fear is always powerless, says one Greek scholar. We can identify with that feeling. When you're in exile, you feel like someone else is pulling the strings. Secondly, it's about good people being in a bad place. Verse 4, these were young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve. Nebuchadnezzar wanted these young men recruited. They were in a bad place because they were the best. Will you forget the idea? That if you're good enough, you won't have any bad stuff. Will you forget the notion that if you read the right book or send a few quid to the evangelist on the TV, that somehow you can escape the bad stuff if you have enough faith? It isn't true. A man came up to me recently after a service. He said, said, is it okay to say that I've got a headache? I said, well, without sounding like Julie Andrews, let's start at the very beginning. (laughs) Do you have a headache? He said, yes, I do. I said, well, then it's all right then. Faith is not a denial of the reality. Faith is not kissing your brains goodbye. So many Christians seem to do that. We'd rather die than think. We're so narrow-minded, our ears touch in the middle. (laughs) And I know too many wonderful people who have become more wonderful because of the painful valleys they've travelled in. Some of us have come to Spring Harvest and we've said, what have I done to deserve this? I don't mean Spring Harvest, I mean... It's funny, isn't it? As a preacher, I could see myself going there and I couldn't stop myself. (laughs) This is about being powerless, good people in a bad place. It's about intellectual alienation, being taught the language and literature of the Babylonians. Astronomy, mathematics, natural, natural history, mythological literature, agriculture, architecture. There is a pressure on to change their thinking. Are you like me? Are you sometimes made to feel strange because you believe in Jesus Christ? Like in our culture, you can believe in anything you like except the risen Jesus. In Britain today, if you model your life around a dead Ecuadorian fruit bat (laughs) by the name of Doris the Winged One, then that's cool. But then you say, he is risen. And people go, hmm. And forgive me, I've talked about it before, but living in what Michael Novak has called a toxic culture, sometimes we feel intimidated. I like to talk about Jesus on airplanes because there's nowhere for people to go. I I was in New York airport and... I said to the Lord, I'd like to 
I'd like to talk, talk to somebody about you today. And God doesn't... Sometimes Christian speakers, we give the impression that we have this sort of red telephone to God, you know, and we... Hello, Lord. Hello, Jeff. How are you? Quite well, thank you. I don't get 40,000 revelations a day. But God whispered into my heart, have I got one for you today, son? I sat next to this lady on the plane. I said, hello, my name is Jeff. What's your name? She introduced herself. I said, oh, what do you do for a living? She said, I'm a clinical psychotherapist based in San Francisco. I said, how nice. I said, do you have an area of special interest in your work? She said, yes, I quite like to help Christians to get out of Christianity. She said, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a traveling electrician and... uh, She said, what do you do? I said, I said I'm, a, I'm a Christian. If you say it quick, it doesn't sound... <laughs> Christian, Christian. Let's say it together. Christian, Christian. I said, I'm a, I'm a Christian leader. She said, what? I said, I'm a, I'm a Christian leader. She said, she said, did you say Christian? And the look on her face, it was like, oh, gag me with a noodle. She said, you don't believe all that Christian stuff, do you? All those absolutes? I am the way, the truth, and the life? Absolute. She said, I don't believe any absolute statements. I said, are you sure? (laughs) She said, yes. I said, well, maybe, maybe we're not flying in an aeroplane right now. Maybe we're flying in a large boat. I am in an aeroplane is a, an absolute statement. She said, you may be right. I said, well, maybe we're not in a large boat. Maybe we're actually in a big Jaffa orange. And she looked at me and she said, you may be right. And I didn't say it because it would have been very rude, but I'm thinking, bless your heart, darling. You need to make an appointment to see yourself. But I did not say that, for that would have been crass and rude. But you see, the weird thing is, ladies and gentlemen, I'm the one feeling like the weirdo. It's intellectual alienation. Exile meant subtle seductions. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine. You see, this is not solitary confinement. This is five-star hotel. And sometimes five-star hotel is more dangerous. Feast can be more tempting than famine. 1 Samuel 12, 9, they forgot the Lord their God. Hosea 13, 6, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud and then they forgot me. You see, exile is subtle. It makes us want to be like everybody else. Are you like me? I'm, I'm sad to confess I don't speak any French. So I, I go to France and I speak English with a French accent. Do you do, you, do, you do that? I go, <laughs> how, on, how many shadows will confess? How many of you do that? Raise your hand. I go out there and I go, hello. How are you? 
because I want to sound like my surroundings. And these poor French people go, ooh. Exile means subtle seduction. Their identity was threatened. They are renamed. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious to Shadrach under command or command of Aku. Mishael, who is what God is to who is what Aku is. Azariah, the Lord has helped to servant of Nebo. By the way, that's even more sinister. The Chaldean version of Isaiah 14 translates Lucifer as Nogia, the same as Nego. Abednego has got clear satanic links. Daniel, to a name that means may Balak protect. Golden Gay, the commentator, says these names are grotesque, silly names that make fun of the gods they're supposed to honor. So maybe that's why they accepted them. We don't know. Most of us would have protested, perhaps. It's also possible Josephus believes, the Jewish historian believes, that the program of indoctrination went so far as to turning Daniel and his friends into literal eunuchs to be servants of the king. When you live in exile, you forget who you are. One of the wonderful things about Spring Harvest this week is the opportunity to reaffirm our vows and to gather together into the community of God's people and to celebrate who we are. Because we so quickly forget. So let's move on and see Daniel's strange stand. You can read about it in verses 8 through 14. How many of you are still there? Say yes, Jeff. First of all, he is called to a rough world. It's an incarnational rather than an escapist response. It's odd that he, it really is odd that he didn't complain about that name. Maybe he was choosing his battles. He fully immersed himself in the three-year teaching and training program. We, we can't speculate from the silence, but we do know that he threw himself into his new world with enthusiasm. Listen, church is not a means of escape from the real world. It should be about equipping us for greater connection. Why is it that sometimes in worship we say, I would suggest, somewhat unhelpful things when we say, just, just forget about everything and, and, and come and worship Jesus now. The trouble with that is, when you just forget about everything and come and worship Jesus now, when you go back into the real world ten minutes later, your worship seems disconnected from your reality. We need to worship in our circumstances with them. We need to drag ourselves kicking and screaming and frightened and fearful and lift up holy hands and hearts in his presence on that basis. I'm nervous of a backing music spirituality where we, we live our we live our moments of ecstasy to the soaring chords and I love the worship and I love the musicians doing what they do. But real life doesn't come with backing music. Have you noticed? I go and watch Tom Cruise and I come out from the cinema and I think, you know, there are differences between me and he. Don't even think about saying anything right now. I can see it on your faces and I'm very hurt. When Tom Cruise kisses his wife, the London Symphony Orchestra kicks in. They're following him around. Oh, time for a snog. Break out the bassoon. When I kiss Kay, 
There's no orchestra in sight. And we can live our faith if we're not careful in that kind of quivery voice, friends. Here we are in the presence of God. And then we end the meeting and reality kicks back in. Don't try and get away from the world. We are called to be in it. And this is not a nice option. The German church opted out of their world in the 1930s, creating or allowing chaos and the death of millions. Dietrich Bonhoeffer rebuked what he called the separatist, escapist church. He said, we are a bunch of salvation egoists who are concerned about our getting into heaven. We want to we get together with our nice clusters of nice people. And then even when people who come into our churches, they actually break through the barrier, but they don't look like us and they don't sound like us. And they don't know they're not supposed to light up a cigarette during the sermon. And they don't know, as one man said to me recently at Timberline, that they're not really supposed to swear when they compliment you on the sermon. Good morning, Jeff. That was really beeping good this morning. I'm so beeping blessed. We don't want to be people who are looking for a better class of sinner. Man came up to me at Timberland and said, Would you pray for me? They call me Pastor Jeff. So, would you pray for me, Pastor Jeff? He said, I'm off to Vegas in a few days and I really need a win. And he saw this look of consternation. He said, I know what you're thinking. I'm going to give 10%. church to be messy and mucky because it is because we are we are we're not called to get away from the world he throws himself into it it's a wise stand a thoughtful and considered response all kinds of debates about why they had a fuss about the diet some people i think superficially say it's about jewish food laws but that's not really the point at all. They wouldn't require him to refrain from wine. Maybe food offered to idols, but then he had vegetables. The veggies would have been offered to the idols too. Most commentators believe that Daniel is making a stand saying, no, our sustenance ultimately comes from God. We will look healthy. We're going to look great because God is with us and not because of the great kitchens of the king. One commentator says Daniel and his friends stand out like an oasis in the desert. He throws himself into his world, but he thinks, he considers his response. And as he does so, thirdly, he acts with great kindness. The, the official is nervous. He doesn't say, he doesn't slap the official and say, don't you know a man of faith? He wins him, he woos him. The official shows favor and sympathy towards Daniel. Verse 9 says, God had caused that to happen, but I imagine it was helped by Daniel being kind. Why are some Christians so rude? Why are some principled people so obnoxious? Friends in the U.S. Senate have told me that some of the most obnoxious people they deal with are Christians. Who rant and rave and write nasty letters and emails and even texts because we can, we've got a wide array of technology to help us be obnoxious these days. Why is it that in our churches we can be so rude, so profoundly unkind? Daniel was kind. 
My wife and I, we have a flat in Chichester. The first time I met our next door neighbour, I knew that she wasn't likely to come to the local Alpha course. I left the gate open for about a minute. We'd not been introduced. She said, did you leave the gate open? I said, yes. She said, don't leave the gate open. I want the gate shut. Except for a few moments when human bodies pass through it. Do you understand? I said, I understand. I went into my flat. I was angry. I tried to read the Bible, but I could only find those psalms about breaking people's dentures. (laughs) I tried to pray, but it was only those, oh God, send boils and frogs. That wouldn't have been appropriate because some of the frogs might have got into our flat. I said to my wife, I'm going to go over there and tell her what for. I'm an adult. I'm 36 years of age. Thank you for your support. And Kay said, leave it. And she didn't leave it. And she went over and chatted and took a bottle of wine and wooed and won. And the lady from across the hall came over to our flat about four weeks ago, spent, spent an hour talking with Kay, crying, talking about her depression. She gave her one of my books. That was not a cue for laughter. Very naughty. Get these people under control, Alan. The last person that I saw before coming to Spring Harvest was her. I came out of my flat two days ago. My wife's in America at the moment, and here she comes. And I'm thinking, check the gate. There is a God, for the gate is closed. Hello, Jeff. How are you? Thanks for the book. Started to read it. Talks talks with me for half an hour. Where are you going to? Going to Butlins and going to Spring Harvest. Give my love to Kay, won't you? And then as I drove off to go to Spring Harvest, she's waving me off. (laughs) See, kindness isn't rocket science. Daniel was kind. He saw that God was involved, albeit selectively. God caused the official, verse 9, to show favor and sympathy for Daniel. Very quickly, can I just say, sometimes we think God is either going to be totally involved or not involved at all. Look at this picture. They are in exile and God is showing up. It's the, see, unanswered prayer is not a problem. The problem's answered prayer. Why on earth? Should God answer any of our prayers with a two-thirds world dilemma that we live in in our world today? It seems almost blasphemous that he would be interested, yet he is. He shows up. He's involved selectively. Daniel acts with consistency. The servant 
vacillates, but Daniel had resolved that he was going to do it, albeit with kindness. With two minutes to go, we see God's mighty hand at the end of all of this. At the end of the 10 days, verse 15, they looked healthier. Would you notice this language, brothers and sisters? Better nourished. The message here is that blessing creates excellence. They are, they've got better health, knowledge, revelation. There's none equal to them. In fact, the language is used 10 times better than the rest. Three times in the passage of Scripture that we've looked at this morning, God is there. God is giving. He gave Jehoiakim and Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 1, verse 2. He gave the chief officials sympathy towards Daniel and his friends, chapter 1, verse 9. He gave the four Judeans knowledge and understanding, good health. You see, blessing creates excellence. But there's something else as well as we come to a conclusion today. It's not really about vegetables. It's not really about diet. Because the messenger of God has been maneuvered into place near the king's throne. He's got favor with that servant. The king likes him. Why? Because in spite of present appearances, God is in control. And this Easter morning... We remind ourselves that Ashpenaz, the horse's nose, is dead. And Nebuchadnezzar, described in Daniel 2.37 as king of kings, he's history. He's dead. And Darius the Mede and Belshazzar the arrogant, and for that matter, the emperor Domitian, who over in the book of Revelation was persecuting the Christians in the Circus Maximus in Rome. They are all dust. But today, thank God, we can say that Jesus, who according to Revelation 17 and Revelation 19, is the real King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And He is very much alive.